0: you can't just have water in the mix and have that thing work it, you know this is why both sodium and potassium are essential nutrients if you become overly deficient in either one of those you're you're going to get sick and eventually will die
1: This is your host, Natalie Allport, and welcome back to the All In Podcast. It is the holiday season right now, and so I just want to express my gratitude to you for listening to this podcast. It really means so much seeing who's listening, getting feedback, reviews. It means the world to me and keeps me going at producing this, putting it out there, and just keeping the passion alive. So, if you are new here, make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episode drops. And if you are not new here, you're a longtime listener, please give us some feedback. We wanna know what you think about the podcast, what you wanna see in 2022. Leave us a review, send us a message, hit us up at the All In Project on Instagram. That is a great place to reach us. Now, moving into today's guest. Today, we have Rob Wolf. He's a two-time New York Times bestselling author. He's a former research biochemist, and he is one of the world's leading experts in paleolithic nutrition. He also founded the world's first and fourth CrossFit affiliate. So he was at the beginning stages of CrossFit when it just came out. And what we talked about in today's episode is a lot on anti-inflammatory foods, diets. We talked and kind of debunked some of these Big popular diets, and talked a little bit about processed foods as well. Uh, we also talked about hydration. He's the founder of Element, which is the electrolyte product that I use every day to support my training and my life. And so we talked about sodium, electrolytes, how much you need, best times to take some of the misconceptions around them. We also talked a little bit about athlete recovery, when especially when it comes to you know cold exposure, cold baths, as well as saunas. When to use them? When's the best time for those kind of things? Rob is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to nutrition, hydration, you know, wellness, health. And so we dive into a lot of different topics on this episode and I really hope that you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, let's go all in. Rob, welcome to the All In Podcast.
0: Huge honor to be here. I, I will bring down property values anywhere people are silly enough to let me on. So thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> no, I'm I'm so excited to have you on. I have so much I want to ask you about, definitely like hydration, nutrition, recovery. But let's start out with your backstory because you've accomplished so much. And I wanna know, or I'm curious to know where your passion for health optimization originally started.
0: Oh gosh, you know, uh, it... it's kind of weird. Like I I was raised in a family that was pretty unhealthy. Like both of my parents smoked, my dad drank a lot, um, uh, pretty poor diet. Um, uh, and I think sometimes you either kind of, you know, immerse yourself in that process to just kind of blend in or you go completely 180 degrees the other direction. And so pretty early on, I got into, um, weightlifting and just an interest in nutrition. And funny enough, like reading goofy bodybuilder magazines, like I remember the the first human physiology class that I took, like I, I crushed it. And it was because I had read these stupid bodybuilding magazines. And they <laughs> actually ended up talking about a lot of uh, physiology in there, you know, and knew about the Krebs right. cycle and different things and fuel partitioning and mitochondria and all this stuff. So um, I mean, but that was kind of the the genesis. And so I I did an undergrad in biochemistry was looking at either medical school or like a research track. And that was 23 years ago. And for whatever reason, like a, a, at that time, because of my interest in health, I was tinkering with nutrition. And at that time, I was doing a, a high carb, low fat vegan type of diet. And for me, under any circumstance, that's probably going to be a bad fit. I know for other people that that can be a a good fit for them. But for me, it was disastrous. I ended up with ulcerative colitis so bad that I was facing a a bowel resection, uh, uh, you know, immunosuppressant drugs. I'm about 170 pounds. I'm 5 foot nine, 170 pounds, reasonably good shape for a, for an old codger. And, um, I, I was down to 125, 130 pounds. So if you imagine literally like you know, 30, 40 pounds less of me than what is here now. Like I was really sick and it was an effort to figure that situation out that this idea of like an ancestral or paleo type diet got on my radar. And I tinkered with that. And for me, it was miraculous. And it was so powerful that there was kind of that as a, as a, a, a thing where I was like, wow, this diet piece is really big. And then right on the heels of it, because of this look at like kind of evolutionary biology, looking at health through this evolutionary biology lens, the idea of circadian biology and and photo period and gut health and you know the gut microbiota, all these other things got on my radar at the same time. And I really started looking at medicine with a pretty critical eye because a modern medicine is amazing to in dealing with acute, issues. Like if you have been hit by a bus, if you fell off a train, you know, I mean, you know, if you have sepsis from a a bacterial overgrowth or something, it is really amazing in dealing with that stuff. And then anything chronic is an abject failure. And I, I, some people might push back on that, but I I just, uh, you know, you look at how fast and amazing our, our smartphones are relative to what they were 10 years ago. And it's shocking. There's this thing called Moore's Law, which, you know, things tend to get half as expensive and twice as good, you know, within technology. And we know more about cardiovascular disease. We know more about diabetes. We know more about Parkinson's and Alzheimer's than we ever have in history. Yet the rates of this stuff keep going up. And mm. the only way that that could happen, like if we knew more about material science, our bridges would get better. They wouldn't get worse. You know, if we know more about... um it, it, material science, again, you know, we we get better, more efficient, uh, better storage batteries. They don't get worse. But we know more about medicine than we've ever known in history. But yet our rates of, you know, chronic degenerative disease continue to increase. And so I started putting all this stuff together. And it was right around this time that I found this really weird workout online called CrossFit. This was around 2000, 2001. And I started doing that with a friend of mine, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. And I don't know, it was maybe like three, four months down the road. We had 15 or 20 people that we were training in his garage. And we were like, do you want to open a gym? Like really open a gym? We're like, yeah, let's do this. You know, this is the type of medicine I would want to practice because you're doing physical movement. It's a broad variety of stuff. Um, You talk about sleep and nutrition and all these other things. You have community. It just seemed like this amazing... Opportunity, So I reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit, told them what we were up to, asked if we could open a gym, and they're like, yes, go be Achieve. And that was uh, CrossFit North, which was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world. Not too long wow. after that, I had a chance to move down to Chico, California, and I opened what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, NorCal Strength and Conditioning, CrossFit NorCal. And that was kind of where my lab became you know my my clinical practice of working with people both on the strength and conditioning side but also on the nutrition side and I ended up going all around the world giving seminars I had a good opportunity to uh, to do some work with the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program working with the seals the boat team special boat teams and their families so that's you know uh, I guess kind of a super you know a uh, uh, 30,000 foot view of 23 years of Doing this stuff, but you know, it all started from a, a family that whose health was not particularly good, and being interested in health, and then having a pretty significant health crisis, and then in in dealing with that health crisis, really finding mainstream medicine being pretty lacking. Like if I get if I'm out hunting and somebody puts an arrow in my shoulder, I definitely want a good surgeon to uh, to to take that thing out. But then for Almost everything else, you know, it's kind of nutrition and lifestyle is going to be the thing that, that moves the needle for most people, not just uh, uh, medical interventions.
1: Mm, Right. Well, I love that you've just kind of followed your passions and curiosity. And that's what I really got out of that story. And it's so cool that you founded really the first CrossFit affiliate and we're part of that. And I'm sure I definitely want to ask you about that. But what really stands out to me is how little we do know about the human body. Like we're learning more, but we still have different sides of the equation arguing vegan is best or this is best or For example, I have friends, they place fourth at the CrossFit Games on a team, and three of the four of them are vegan. However, Mm -hmm. I, so I always said I can never be vegan, and I don't like to say I can never be something. So my boyfriend and I did a one-week vegan challenge a couple months ago he felt really great after one week. I felt completely awful. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I was like inflamed, uh, all my running workouts completely went down the hill to the point, like two weeks later, I retested my mile and took like 30 seconds off my mile. But that week I couldn't even hit any of my paces. It was, it was disastrous. And so I love your, your thoughts on why there's, there's just such a, a variance between nutrition and what works for different people.
0: Well, man, it, it, that's a really good question. And uh, the question is going to be better than my answer. I'll tell you tell you <laughs> that up front. Uh, the answer is going to be kind of a, a flailing mess, but humans are, are well, I mean, if you get super deep into vegan land, then it's like humans are herbivores. We're supposed to be like cows and gorillas and stuff like that, which is is honestly ridiculous. Like people will say, well, we don't have canines. And so, you know, we're we're not designed to eat meat. And it's like, well- we live in Arctic areas, but we, but we don't have fur. We have this thing called technology. We make shit, you know, yeah. we make cutting tools, we make clothing, we make housing, you know, so some of these things are just kind of, you know, logically ridiculous, but I, I think a a reasonable spot for most people is that humans are opportunistic omnivores. Like we can and have exploited an, an enormous range of locations to live and foods and, and they've done really well. You know, you have the the Maasai in, in sub-Saharan Africa that subsist almost exclusively off of a yogurty type mix of blood and milk. And they eat meat occasionally, but they eat very, very little plant material and, and they're amazingly healthy, tall, amazing teeth, you know, and then you 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 have some folks like like legitimate veganism is something that doesn't exist in pre-agricultural times, it doesn't exist in pre-modern times. This is really, even within more vegetarian cultures like in India, they still ate a lot of animal products. They ate a, a lot of cheese, a lot of yogurt, a lot of dairy and and whatnot, like the legit vegan. Approach is a very novel thing, both evolutionarily and culturally. And, and it's not to say it can't work, but I, I think at a, at a baseline, humans are just remarkably flexible, remarkably adaptable, except when they're not, you know, so like for myself, I have celiac. So if I get exposed to gluten, if I get ex- and gluten is very problematic, but even things like oats and, and uh, millet and rye. All have gluten-like proteins that also make me sick. So I'm pretty resilient, except when I'm not. You know, and so it, 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 you know, if I lived in an area where wheat or wheat-type products were 80% of the diet, which it you know happens in some places, I would have a disastrous time trying to to navigate that. Um, interestingly, though, uh, some people with the celiac gene, if they get the right gut microbiota, those gut bugs have the technology, the, the genetics to make proteins and make enzymes, to degrade gluten, so the gluten never really makes contact with the gut lining. And so some, some people, some circumstances, like we we have a symbiotic relationship with uh, uh, microbes that can facilitate that process, but it doesn't work for everybody, and it doesn't work under all circumstances and whatnot. So I think that this is just another one of these examples. Here's something that is really concrete, and then we can kind of expand out from there. Somebody asks you, is drinking coffee good or bad for for, say, like sleep? What's your answer?
1: It depends when you when you have
0: it. Depends when you have it and all that stuff. So it, then, we, when we when we back up from that, we're like, okay, well, let's look at the half life of caffeine. The half life is how long it takes an organism to degrade half of a chemical you know, from, from starting. So if you took a dose of a hundred milligrams of caffeine, how long does it take until only 50 milligrams of caffeine are still in your, your system? That's the from in toxicology. That's the half-life. So the average that you would, you would see within like medical reporting is the average half-life in humans of caffeine is eight hours. Okay. Okay. Well, some people the half-life is four hours and other people the half-life is 36 hours. (laughs) So for some people, they literally could have a cup of coffee at, 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 at like a big cup of coffee at 6 PM and by 10 o'clock, they're good. Like they go lay down, they fall asleep. That's the four hour half-life person. The 36 hour half-life person has a cup of coffee yesterday morning and they're still awake and jittery today, you know? And so we know within toxicology circles, like drug metabolism, you know, a, a kind of situations, there is massive variation from person to person. I don't know if there's that much variation on all of the nutritional topics like protein and carbs and fat, but there is enormous variation. And there's variation in the gut microbiota and what it can and can't handle. Some people do great on high fiber. Some people, it's absolutely disastrous, you know, as as an example. So I I think, and also, uh, you know, depending on you know, what folks were eating before. If somebody was eating a very junky, highly processed diet, and they shift to like lentils and and whole quinoa and fruits and vegetables, it's probably going to be a win for that person, at least for some period of time. What I would find really interesting is to check back in with these folks in five years and see if they're they're still crushing this. And I wouldn't be surprised if they have reintroduced some amount of animal products at, at, at that point. Maybe not, but this is, in my clinical experience, this has been what I see. Folks will shift that direction. Um, usually, they end up cleaning up a lot of the junk out of their diet, and then they usually kind of shift back and reintroduce seafood, pastured meat, you know, whatever it is that they, they feel comfortable with. And they, they usually notice a, uh, kind of a performance bump. And I, I will say this, just throwing it, throwing this out there. We had a really cool opportunity to work with this, uh, Seventh-day Adventist family. They had eight, eight children and they were all grown. You know, they're, they're all, you know, early twenties to early thirties. Um, but four of them were vegan. Four of them, we kind of got them to shift more, kind of, kind of paleo, so higher protein and everything. Now they're siblings, so they share a lot of genetics, but they're clearly not identical. It's not like a twin experiment. But I gotta say, the folks that we had, you know, it, it's funny. The the paleo folks ate lots and lots of plant material, but it was mainly fruits and roots and tubers and stuff like that. Very minimally processed food, but really adequate protein. In contrast to their their siblings that were eating this this vegan diet, and to try to get higher protein, those folks had to rely on some really processed food, you know, shakes and bars and different things like that. And fundamentally, the uh, the the four that that ran with this kind of paleo-ish, adequate protein, whole food type diet just beat the pants off the other the other four siblings, both in body composition and performance and whatnot. And, um, and again, I'm not saying that that will work the same way for everybody. And the kind of, the cool thing about, um, nutrition is that you can, you can try it on like a sweater for 30, 60, 90 days, give it a shot, see how you look, feel, and perform in it. If you like the results, keep doing it. If you don't, then you know you can you can change gears on it. it it's not like religion where you have to wait until you die to figure out if you have got it right or wrong. Like you can actually iterate a, a, along the the path. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just jabbering now, but that you know, kind of a big picture deal again. Like I think humans are really um, adaptable. I think there's massive variation from person to person. And uh, and then the kind of cool thing is that with the ubiquity of information, you know, uh, shows like what you do where you help educate people about options that they have in their their lives, you know, if somebody wants to make a change. They've got a lot of different options, sometimes too many options, you know, and that can be difficult to, to narrow everything down. But um, we at least live at this spot where we can have a... A guess, a hypothesis. I think I'm gonna do really well on a vegan diet, okay? Well, let's find a smartly formulated iteration of that. Give it a shot. see how you do. You're crushing it. Well, steady as she goes. Keep going it. or if it's not working for you, then we can iterate off that. And I, I can't think of another time in history that people have had the opportunity to do stuff like this. Like it's very cool.
1: Right. And like you mentioned, like if you were born in certain areas of the world, especially not that long ago, that you ate maybe only potatoes or um, only meat or you ate the Mediterranean diet. But now we're kind of incorporating all of that um, because of the Internet, because of travel. um, We can bring foods over. We can see what someone else on the other side of the world is doing and. Something that you also touched on that I think is important is you mentioned with that kind of study or the test you were doing with those kids, um, or I guess they're in their 20s or 30s, so I I shouldn't call them kids anymore, but um, the young adults is that the ones who were on that strict kind of vegan diet, you had to incorporate so many things to get the protein. And that's what I was experiencing was, you know, all these foods that aren't actually that healthy, but people think they are because they're plant-based, and that's something i'd love to ask you about because we're seeing you know athletes like tom brady and different people talk about how important it is to control inflammation to have a sustainable career doing high intensity exercise or sport And everyone's talking about now the hype is plant-based. But I think people kind of misconstrue what that means, where there might be going to the the store and getting something super processed that says it has spinach or it has some sort of plant-based, but it actually could be, you know, an inflammatory type of food versus doing something a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, I... (sighs) I'm so frustrated by like the, the vegans have such great marketing because plant-based, oh, that's so benign. Like that's so, you know, there's nothing scary about this. It's plant-based, you know? And well, what does that really mean? Like technically a paleo diet is plant-based. Like generally you get that to me, you know, as a kind of geeky scientist, it's like, okay, if it's plant-based, that just means that I need to get 50.001 percent of my calories from plants versus animals and I'm plant-based like it, mm. it, you know it, it it's uh uh yeah it's just silly so I like to just l- let's just call it what it is it's it, it's a push for a vegan type diet you know because plant-based could be um beer and pretzels and doritos you know i mean it, it it's like what it what is that even even mean so. Uh, I, I think it's great for marketing. It's great for kind of flying stuff under the radar. And the the ironic thing is that you know Forbes had a really interesting article that was making the case that the biggest friends of big pharma and industrial ag are the vegans that are backing things like Impossible Foods and Impossible Burger, like mm-hmm. because it is whole hog into these processed foods. And when you think about it, like uh, uh, what are the processed meats we have, like lunch meat and salami and jerky, you know, I mean, that that's kind of it. But when you look at like the explosion, I'm, a, I'm on a industry email that uh, the, the food innovation council, and they talk about all the new things that, that, that are getting spun up in, in food processing. It's all plant-based. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, you can do so many more kind of wacky things with it, but it's all highly processed food. Now, the question is, is it good for you? Or is it bad for you? I, I think as time goes on, we're going to find out that it, it's, it, it's not too far off of basically like candy or other junk food because the processing, you know, does just kind of crazy stuff to the food. Like it's kind of one thing if people... They're like, I eat a plant-based diet. It's like, okay, what do you eat? And it's like, well, some, you know, some beans some some pearl barley and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, okay, you, it, if that works for you, that's fantastic. But when it's like these, uh, vegan hockey pucks that have, you know, texturized yeah, yeah. soy protein and all these different things. And it's like, is that really like good for you? And is that really going to be good over the long haul? And this is completely neglecting things like, um, essential fatty acids, zinc, um, iron in the book that I've got over my, my shoulder here, sacred cow. We did a book and film about this. It looks at the health environmental and ethical considerations of meat, inclusive food system of an animal products, inclusive food system. And the health part is, is fascinating. Like when you look at at vegan and vegetarian cultures, uh, wanton levels of nutrient deficiencies and this is really most profoundly manifest in in the pregnant individual breastfeeding children like those folks get crushed by the the you know the those nutrient deficiencies kids in particular like if they are b vitamin inadequate zinc inadequate they don't get proper brain development and that's it like they don't get a second go around on that so you know, it, it, this is. I, I think for a, a twenty-year-old, twenty-four-year-old person who's already a stud athlete and they're they're done with their um, their growth and development phase, but they're not. You know, let's say it's a female and they're not in their their childbearing phase yet. That might work well, but there's going to I, I uh, I'm gonna sound like a dick, but like the 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 folks who are experimenting with this around pregnancy, uh, in and around with their kids, they're gonna they're playing with fire. Like, and it, you know, everybody likes to point to Europe as being, you know, more advanced and whatnot. They they do not recommend vegan diets for pregnancy and for children. It, it, in Italy, it's considered child abuse to put a, a child wow. on a vegan diet. Whereas in the United States, the uh, uh, American dietetics council, they have a statement that says that, Vegan and plant based diets are appropriate for all stages of the life cycle. And there is absolutely no research to support that. It, it is bullshit. Like it, yeah. it, there is inadequate information to suggest that that is, in fact, helpful and good for all stages of the life cycle. So, again, I don't know. I, I probably bounced around a lot there, but it's a, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a complex topic and it's a thorny topic. it, it It's where um, nutrition becomes becomes religion rather, rather right. quickly. Yeah. But yeah.
1: That does seem to happen a lot with the camps of either only meat or only uh, veggies. And similarly, like I think, you know, gluten-free diets had a very big peak. Um, Maybe, I mean, it's still very popular, but a few years ago, especially, it was the talk Mm -hmm. of the town. And I think we saw similar stuff, like what what you were just talking about with, you know, the vegan foods that are highly processed, where I can imagine yourself as a celiac, you could say, okay, I could just not eat normal bread, but then they're creating these gluten-free breads a gluten-free pizza the this this to market it to people who want to go gluten-free but is that necessarily healthy there's a lot of people who right. go gluten free and then they're eating way more calories and it's with less micronutrients than than before
0: right right and you see this in keto land too people do a ketogenic diet and they're trying to figure out keto breads and keto pies and keto this and that and it it's like if keto works for you just eat keto And if you want to have a goddamn sandwich, have a sandwich, you know, and just accept that there might be some consequences to it or like, you know, you're at a family event. And and that said, there are some cool things like there's this stuff called rebel ice cream, which is kind of a keto keto ratioed ice cream. It's pretty, pretty damn good. Like it, it tastes good. I don't feel weird afterwards. So I will say that there's a little innovation there where, you know, because of I don't handle carbs spectacularly well. And I definitely don't deal with gluten well. So like a birthday, you know, like now I have kids when I didn't have kids, it wasn't that big of a deal, but they're like, dad, I want you to have a birthday cake, you know? And I was like, well, what am I going to eat? That's not going to, you know, make me feel terrible. There are actually some options out there now that, uh, taste pretty good. I don't feel bad after eating and my kids get to sit down and have a, you know, slice of birthday cake with me. So there, there are some cool things like that, but my day-to-day diet isn't trying to just replicate another shit diet with keto ratioed stuff. You know, I still mainly eat whole mentally, mentally processed foods. And occasionally, you know, I'll, I'll have some ice cream or I'll have one of these, you know, almond flour based, uh, based cakes or something for like a holiday or whatever. And it, gosh, there was, um, I have this, I want to say it's like 1932 it was published in 1932. It was a cookbook that my mom had. And it was, I, 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 I want to say it was Betty Crocker. It might not have been Betty Crocker, but it reminds me almost of like a, a uh, an advice columnist and, and I'm blanking on her name. She was pretty famous, like ask Annie or, you know, something like okay. that, but it, it it would have recipes, but then it also had these kind of like, what do you do for this situation or that situation? And, um, and it, it basically, it was a question, is it appropriate to have a dessert every night with dinner? And the answer was absolutely not one that, that, that's, uh, you know, kind of, uh, gaudy to be flaunting that, that you have the resources to have a, a dessert every single night. And that that's kind of gauche, <laughs> you know, so there was actually some social pressure and i like, Oh, what are they doing? Well, they're eating dessert every night. And this is during the the Great Depression and stuff like that. So it was like, yeah, pump the brakes on that. And then it it made the case. It's like once once a week with family on Sundays is a completely appropriate time to have a dessert. And that should be the dessert for the week. (laughs) And then the rest of the time is, you know, rinse, lather, repeat the, the standard stuff we had no obesity at those times. Like there, there was no uh, childhood type two diabetes, you know, uh, but today literally every day, almost every meal is dessert. When we look at the the way that things are processed and the, the ubiquity of flavors and tastes and everything that we're, we're able to mix together. But that was, I, I just, I, I, it was kind of quaint and, and, you know, a lot of people might, might find it annoying, but it, it was some interesting wisdom that, you know, if we had that as a cultural value, it's like, well, you get dessert once a week, you know, your 62 ounce soda, that's a dessert. It's not part of your lunch. It's a dessert and you get it once a week. And if we partitioned all of that stuff to like once a week, you and I would be doing something else because people wouldn't need help with their, their health and wellness. You know, it's that, that problem would be largely solved.
1: Right. Oh, very interesting. I want to, I want to go back to talking about like anti inflammatory, especially in like the athlete world. That's a, that's a hot topic. And what are things that you could suggest for athletes or people who are doing high intensity exercise to try to kind of mitigate that, whether it's through their nutrition or a, any other, um, advice you might have for kind of combating inflammation and helping them recover and have just, you know, a, a longer, uh, or more longevity in their careers of doing those sports or that type, type of training.
0: Yeah. You know, my, my answer isn't probably going to be that popular, but I I think a lot of what the anti-inflammatory potential of diet is, is just figuring out a way to not overeat. Mm
1: -hmm. Like
0: when we start overeating and it doesn't matter whether it's keto or vegan or paleo or whatever, then the inflammatory process is is often running. Um, I think that that's one layer. So we do have to figure out some way of of coming to terms with, you know, managing our calorie intake. I do think that adequate protein intake is a big factor there. Like protein is just dis, disproportionately more satiating than either fat or carbs by themselves. It sends a signal to our brain. We've had enough food and we, we folks tend to stop eating when they get adequate protein from there. I do think that the nutritional composition, like the food quality matters. So some people do pretty well with grains. Some people do well with grains, but they need to be soaked and sprouted, like kind of that Weston A. Price, you know, uh, 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 processing of of grains and, and legumes and whatnot. So I think being aware of immunogenic foods is is a big one, but it, you know, it's kind of secondary to the calories. And then from there, kind of micronutrients, like being crystal clear that you are either supplementing or getting adequate vitamin D from sun exposure like the the and then for vitamin d to work you need adequate levels of magnesium um otherwise the vitamin d doesn't really do its thing and then it it just kind of daisy chains out from from there so i'm a little bit you know like people will say blueberries are an anti-inflammatory food it's like uh, kind of and and you know it's um you know if if just anti-inflammation was was a total godsend, then we could just run around popping NSAIDs and would be great. But that's a problem too. Like it causes gut problems. It it, uh, hampers the immune function Um, when you do physical training and you overly suppress Inflammation, Like part of the adaptation to training is getting an inflammatory response. This is where now people are realizing, you know, if you're at the CrossFit games and you're doing multiple workouts back to back, doing a cold dunk in between is good. If you want an adaptation to the training you're doing, a cold dunk in between is bad because it, it dramatically suppresses that inflammatory process that is part of the adaptation. It stimulates, a, you know, mTOR activity in the muscles and and more systemically. And you have to have that as part of the adapt- adaptive process. So, I, I think that you know the the whole like term anti-inflammatory is it's, it's a slippery thing, you know, like, um, some degree of fasting or time restricted eating is valuable from an anti-inflammatory perspective, but too much of that becomes problematic because you just don't have the, the energy to train and do much of anything. And it also starts negatively impacting muscle mass. So, um, you know, even in this time of COVID, you know, it's, it's, um, part of the, the benefit of people who clear COVID rapidly is that they they have both an innate and an adaptive immune response that gets on the virus and really mitigates its its impact. The people who really have problems and and, they may spend weeks or months in the hospital and then ultimately potentially die, the virus is gone. What they're dealing with is the aftermath of an immune system that is pro-inflammatory now. And so Mm -hmm. all of these Feed forward mechanisms with the interleukins and prostaglandins and whatnot that feed into an inflammatory process. Those are often running. And most of those people are overweight, dyslipidemic, don't have proper blood sugar control, other comorbidities, you know, uh, uh, things going on there. So they're in a situation where, yeah, they are pro-inflammatory because of the situation they're in then you throw this virus in the mix, which causes a pro-inflammatory response that can then just start self-perpetuating. So, the anti-inflammatory story is true, but it's a nuanced thing. You know, it's not just a, a switch that's on or off. It's more of a rheostat that you want to dial up and down and have some awareness there. Uh, proper intake of omega-3 fats are, are super important. Uh, ideally more the EPA, DHA, the elongated fats. Um, some people can convert the shorter fats, you know, reasonably well. And this kind of dovetails back to the, the plant-based story. But if you're, want, if you're a person who stinks at, If you don't have the genetics to elongate these uh, uh, short chain omega-3 and omega-6 fats, you're going to have a heck of a time meeting your your minimum requirements with that. And you will subsequently be kind of pro-inflammatory.
1: Hmm. I I love that you brought up the cold baths example because that's actually something I was going to ask you about because I often get asked from people um, I posted something I think this weekend of going into the river and they're asking oh do you do this every day after training and so trying to explain the nuances there of like no what you've been told about. Having a cold bath to recover faster every day after a workout isn't necessarily correct because like you mentioned, if you're in training, you want to be having that inflammatory response because you're trying to adapt and build and maybe grow muscle or whatever the adaptation you're trying to make. And then the cold bath could be suppressing that versus in competition. You're not trying to make a gain. You're not competing at the CrossFit Games to uh, improve your training. That's like what you've been training for. And so you want to optimize for the next event. You don't care if you didn't get better because of that. 100 handstand pushups for time event. It's just in the recovery mode. Um, and so I think that's, that's really important for, for people to get out of what you, what you just said, because I know a lot of people, um, they see the athletes doing the cold baths, right. And then they think that's what they need to do every single day if they want to train hard. And that's not necessarily the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, if folks, uh, Huberman lab, uh, it, is a great podcast. podcast. Yeah. He's a brilliant guy. And you know, he had some great recent takeaways from some of that material. And like the the kind of gnarly reality is that like, if you really, I think want to optimize the benefits of like cold exposure, first thing in the morning, you get up and you just get after your cold exposure, whether it's, you know, for, you know, we live in kind of colder areas, you could stand out on your back porch in a pair of socks and your underwear. And like, if it's, I you
1: know, do you do that sometimes. <laughs>
0: zero zero degrees out, you know, you're going to get a get a, a, a an effect there, or you get in some cold water. Um, But you do that early, and you get a really pronounced uh, dopamine response. You get uh, epinephrine uh, uh, up regulation, you know, in the brain. So you're really on. Like it, it turns everything on, and then you go about your day, and then you do your training, and then post training, you pr- probably could make the case that. That's when you do your sauna work because it actually accentuates the pro-inflammatory process. And this is uh, like out of Eastern Bloc countries, when people twisted an ankle or got soft tissue injury, they heated the area. They didn't ice it. Unless it it, it, was if they were looking to enhance recovery, if the person tweaked an ankle and they still needed to be in the game, then they would ice it, but that was to just get them through the game. It wasn't to enhance recovery. Right. And so you actually feed forward that inflammatory process so that, you know, all the tissue turns over, you get kind of maximum in expression and whatnot in that punctuated time. So you those are maybe the ways to kind of optimize both heat and cold if we're we're looking at optimizing kind of physical resilience and and adaptation to exercise and whatnot.
1: Mm, I, I love that. And, um, I, from my own selfish perspective, I'd love to know your thoughts. Like, do you, do you guys have a sauna at your house?
0: We, we don't have a sauna at the house. The gym that we go to has a sauna. And then we do have a hot tub. Like we, okay. we thought about putting one in here, but it, it, the only place we could put it is kind of outside. And when we looked at the amount of time to heat it up and, and all that, I, I wasn't willing to, to deal with that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what are your thoughts based on your sauna experience of like an infrared sauna versus kind of the more traditional like Scandinavian type sauna? Uh,
0: you know, the, the, there's a couple of adaptations that we're going for with sauna. So one of them is an expression of heat shock proteins and both heat shock and cold shock proteins are these proteins that are expressed in response to a stressor. And those proteins tend to stabilize other proteins in our system. So as we age, as we train um, proteins in our system can get kind of broken or modified enzymes don't work as well. And these heat hot and heat and cold shock proteins help to minimize that alteration. And so a little heat or cold exposure. Now it's this process called hormesis where it immunizes us against later insults. And, and so, that's one adaptation for sauna specifically so much of the benefit in addition to the the heat shock proteins seems to be a cardiovascular benefit so you you basically you get your body hot enough that it starts sweating and the the heart rate will elevate into that like zone to kind of cardio level and it seems to be really uh cardio protective like uh research on, on folks doing sauna four to, to seven days a week, if they hit that like 20 minutes a day and, and, uh, you know, they get that cardiac output for the bulk of that time, they die from something, but it's almost never heart disease, you know? So it seems to be really cardioprotective. So what is the goal of the sauna? You know, if the goal is that cardiac adaptation and also heat shock proteins And the the main deal is that we just need to get the body hot. The unfortunate reality of infrared sauna is, you know, the environment is only about 140 degrees. So relative to the, you know, like a a banya, like the the Russian sauna and some of the, the Finnish saunas, those things are over 200 degrees typically. So you get a really pronounced heat shock protein expression. It raises the body temperature really, really rapidly. So you start getting that cardiac output. And then because it's a dry sauna, you sweat. So this is one of the problems with wet saunas is that the high moisture content of the air prevents you from being able to sweat. And so you don't really get that much adaptation on the the cardiovascular front. This is also part of the reason why um, hot, humid environments suck to be in because your, really your, good. your cooling mechanisms don't really work. So, you, you know, you're just kind of stymied on both ends. So I think infrared saunas can be great. Clearly they can be super, super portable, you know, like a, a friend of mine has basically like a, a little room, you know, a, a phone booth size with yeah. like canvas and he, he stands in there and he gets a good effect off of it. Um, you know, it's much easier than, the infrastructure necessary for like a, a traditional dry sauna. So I do think that one can get a lot of the benefit, uh, particularly, you know, the cardiovascular benefit, but it's going to take a little longer. It, it's going to be a, a longer time investment each time in the sauna to get the the same type of effect. And I don't know that one would experience the same type of heat shock protein upregulation because of the, you know, 140 degrees versus like 200 Plus degrees, like the sauna. My my wife goes into. I guess the women at the health club are tougher than the men. The men's saunas set at like one ninety five, and the women's are set at like two ten. Wow, and and yeah, it's that's hot. Yeah,
1: that is very hot. Yeah, wow. Okay, yeah. So the saunas, like here in Canada, a lot of them were closed for a big chunk of time when the gyms were closed with lockdown, and then they kind of stayed closed. I think just because. with with the rules of social distancing, they'd have to only allow one person at a time or something. Um, And so it's been hard to get into a sauna. And so I see everyone with the infrared sauna. So I'm like, that's something we could fit into our house. It's, we can't really fit in like a full size sauna or I mean, try to build it outside. But again, it would take so long to get hot when it's like negative 30 here. Um, so we're, yeah, trying to figure that one out, but I, I feel the same way. I'm like, do I want to invest in this infrared sauna? If it's not necessarily going to give, you know, that, that full benefit that I'm looking for.
0: I still think probably for most people, like it always resources are a consideration and everything, but I, I think that it's worth it for the, for the most part, you know, like, I, I think that one is going to garner the bulk of the, the benefits for sure. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, going back, I, one thing I wanted to touch on just when we were talking about anti-inflammatory diets, and obviously there's a ton of complexity when it comes to nutrition and finding what works for you. If... We could simplify it down to some things that people could do to figure some of this stuff out. Like, is it going to get their blood tested to figure out what are some of those allergens? Like, for example, mm. I'm definitely allergic to nuts, and I would only have known that. I mean, obviously, I could test and try, and then I would have died. But right. um, by going and getting, getting you know, an allergy test, are there ways that people can figure some of this this stuff out so that they know, because I think sometimes people have low level, maybe inflammation and Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily know it. Like for example, I'm allergic to all nuts, but not peanuts and almonds but I was always told to stay away from almonds because they could have cross contamination where they were right. people package them but at the same time I'm like if I remember getting tested and there was a low level with response with the almonds but not enough that they said okay you know these are going to kill you but so I can drink almond milk fine but after a while I said I'm not going to do this because I feel like if I'm drinking this almond milk, maybe there is some sort of low level inflammation or sensitivity that I have that I'm not really realizing, but it could be um, something based on the fact that I'm allergic to all these other nuts, but I have no idea how I would ever figure that out, you know, concretely.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the the testing, or at least not as the frontline intervention okay. um, wh- where I am now. Like if I sit down to do some work with someone I really try to focus on dense protein sources first. Meat, seafood, fowl, you know, all all that type of stuff. I try to get the person to a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass as a bottom or as high as a gram of protein per pound of body weight as an absolute top. Like that bracket seems to be pretty good. So... 200 pound person, they're 10% body fat. Uh, they might be as low as 180 grams of protein most days, or as high as 200 grams of protein most days. So try to start there. And then based off of their goals, like, are they trying to lose weight or gain muscle or whatever? And we'll adjust calories appropriate to that. But, uh, uh, you know, figuring out, does this person do better on fat mainly on carbs mainly, or on kind of like a zone type, you know, balanced ratio of fat and carbs and a little bit of tinkering will tell us that. And also just kind of interviewing or surveying the person like, Hey, how do you do after six? like if you get stuck and you can't eat for six or seven hours during the day, how do you do? And the person's like, Oh, I melt down and I'm like (laughs) drooling on myself. And it's like, okay, we need to probably goose some of that fat adaptation. So we buffer your, your ability to kind of go in between meals and that can change with time. Like if we get people more muscular and metabolically flexible, then maybe we can reintroduce some carbs there, but, you know, either experimentation or just a little bit of surveying to kind of get a sense of, you know, how the person does with fatter carbs. And then kind of that, that final piece, I really do think the immunogenic side of things is important, but I'll ask people about their digestion, you know, like the Bristol stool chart, uh, uh, any type of like sinus issues and whatnot. But the, the funny thing with that is that if somebody has been eating wheat or dairy or nuts or what have you at a consistent enough cadence throughout their life that they never have gone long enough to not experience the problems... They just yeah. assume that this is normal. And so this is where I kind of still like kind of a, a paleo-ish intervention as a reset. You know, it's like, let's pull out the grains, let's pull out the legumes, let's pull out the dairy and maybe maybe nuts also. Um, and then let's reintroduce those one at a time, like go 30 days and then reintroduce them one at a time and, and see how you do. And it, it's stunning the number of people that have come back to me and they're like, man, I had... You know, when when you asked about digestion, I said I didn't have any problems, and I didn't realize that I had gas, bloating, and reflux all the time. I thought that that was just normal. I thought mm. everybody had that, you know. And uh, I'm not that smart. I'm not that good looking, but I have a lot, a lot, a lot of people that have reported like when I do this reset, like it, it, it works, you know. And so, I mean, there's there's some little bit of magic to this thing of doing an elimination diet, like get adequate protein, figure out kinda you, whether you're a fat or carb metabolizer, if you've got some balance here, and then just spend a little bit of time exploring these, the potential around these immunogenic foods. And if after doing that, somebody still has a lot of problems, they still have GI problems, they still have joint inflammation, they, they eat a meal and they get like foggy headed and they, you know, they, they get, you know, maybe it's a histamine response, maybe it's a salicylate response or something. Then we can get in and start doing some more testing, but, uh, you know, like the gut microbiome testing, I'm super underwhelmed by, like, I think it's voodoo and witchcraft. Like <laughs> absolutely the, the, the gut microbiome is critical for human health. And I, in my opinion, that's about as much as we know about it. Like I, I, people claim, Oh, you need. acromantia and this and that and the other, and like, there are lots and lots of populations around the world that are very healthy, have great gut health and they have no acromantia. They have no this, they have no that, you know, and, and, uh, uh, this gets out in the weeds, but maybe when we're able to analyze the proteomics of, of these, these, uh, bacteria. So these bacteria are a little factory that have a set of genes and those genes can do different things. Like at the beginning of the show, we talked about the fact that certain types of bacteria, Um, They produce these enzymes, uh, proleal endopeptidases, which help degrade gluten. If you need a particular bacteria to do a particular job, then we may get at a point where we can target it to, okay, this person has tree nut allergies. So we need something that can better degrade the proteins in these tree nuts before it interfaces with the gut barrier. We might get to that point someday. We are absolutely not remotely (laughs) at that point today. And I see a lot of people sell a lot of a lot of dreams around you know the the gut, and uh, I I really generally don't see it work any better on the testing side relative to just doing elimination diets. But the the testing sometimes can objectively support the individual. Like if the person really loves dairy and they, they pull it out and they feel better, but they're like, man, I really miss it. And then you, you do this testing. And it's like, yeah, this is why you have acne and joint problems and the, you know, elevated like rheumatoid factor and whatnot. It's probably due to the dairy. Then that's maybe the leverage to get the person to change. But it's, it's funny, even though I'm a biochemist by training, like I'm not super geeked out on super extensive testing. Like I like to do it more empirically, like, introduce, remove, and, and just kind of go in, in that fashion.
1: Well, you you heard it here first, folks, you can uh, do the try an elimination diet, try something that doesn't cost you money over the holidays, buying these um, tests or buying it for someone else or whatever that is. Um, I, I love that because I think it's important to give people tools and access that they can do, you know, low cost, because I think people are trying to market these products that are $500, even $1,000. And then you have to keep repeating them to get retested and do these things. Right. And it's overwhelming people thinking, Oh, my God, there's something wrong with my gut. And I don't have the money to fix it. And that can cause a lot more stress, which then, you know, doesn't help with their health either. So uh, I love that you gave kind of an easy solution there. And um, going back to what we talked about the sauna, we talked about sweating, I want to talk about hydration. Obviously, (laughs) you know, you're one of the founders of element, I love element for people listening. It's a electrolyte product I use daily, and I've noticed a big difference in, in my training and hydration with it. Um, so could you just start off with talking about what is hydration? Because I think a lot of people think it just, you know, what the influencers say, drink this three liter right. three gallon of water every day, and then you'll be good, but it may not be a fact.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny. So the, the Genesis story of element is probably too long to share right now, but, but, when we started thinking about even launching the company, I, I got in and looked at the medical literature on hydration because I thought I understood it, but it's like I don't know. I, I you know, so I just tried to go into it with just you know an uh, uh, unbiased position, and so I grabbed my uh, Guyton's textbook of medical physiology. It's an old, old copy of it; it's probably like thirty years old now, but it's still pretty relevant with most things. And I just looked in the back and like, okay, where does hydration get to find? And so when you look in there, hydration is the the body fluids and the electrolytes, like they're inseparable and right. they're inseparable in part because every nerve impulse, muscle contraction that occurs in our body, every, every function that we do is a consequence of sodium potassium pumps in our body. This is the way that the ATP cycle, the Krebs cycle works is by driving this the the you know the sodium potassium pumps. And so you can't just have water in the mix and have that thing work. It, you know, this is why both sodium and potassium are essential nutrients. If you become overly deficient in either one of those, you're you're going to get sick and eventually will die. So proper hydration is a balance between both the fluid constituents, water, and also the electrolytes. And something that got missed along the way in, in sodium getting demonized because it's a part of processed foods and kind of modern diets is that the lower the sodium intake we have, the better. And when we look at the medical literature on that, it's just not the case. It, it, uh, we, we see actually an interesting U-curve with with, uh, sodium intake and very, very low sodium intakes on par with what the medical authorities tell us, you know, two or fewer uh, grams of sodium per day are the most tightly associated with morbidity and mortality, sickness and death. Mm. And then at about five grams per day is the low ebb for most people. And then what's interesting is as people consume more and more sodium, you have to get to about eight to 10 grams of sodium per day to be as at risk of morbidity and mortality as people consuming two grams per day. So it's much more dangerous to be too low in sodium than uh, too much in sodium because the kidneys are really adept at if we get too much sodium, they will filter that out, but they also do a great job of monitoring our potassium, our magnesium and our calcium. So long as we have adequate sodium, if we have inadequate sodium we tend to start shedding potassium. We te- we will pull sodium out of our bones. And when we pull the sodium out of our bones, we also pull calcium out of our bones. So it's this feed forward mechanism and osteoporosis and whatnot. So, uh, uh, you know, the the hydration story is just critically important for health. And, and really, it, it, it's hard to say that it's even more important for performance, but you will notice it for performance even more because- All of our nerve impulses, all of our muscle contractions are driven by sodium potassium pumps. So if we are deficient in sodium, you will notice brain fog, lethargy, fatigue, slower reaction times to say nothing of a a worsening of um, just general physical output. And, you know, because you've mentioned like some some CrossFit related stuff uh, a couple of times, it's looking like rhabdo. Maybe rhabdomyolysis may have a major contribution from inadequate electrolyte status, specifically sodium. Like getting that right may be a major factor. And I had long looked at rhabdo as a substrate depletion problem. Like people work so hard that they completely deplete all the substrate in their, their muscles. And then you get an over-release of calcium into the, the muscle cell and it causes enormous damage and, and rupturing of the the uh, muscle cell. And I think that that is still a factor, but part of what's going on there is that if we deplete the sodium in that situation, then that, that worsens the whole problem. And again, I know I bounced around on a bunch of stuff, but yeah, the, the hydration piece is really important, but hydration is absolutely not just water. It's, it's this uh, electrolytes with a real particular eye to sodium. Like if you get the sodium, right, particularly if you're eating and. Otherwise minimally processed whole food type diet, like that is probably the main thing that you need to, to look at. And also just salting your food will not cut it. Like I, I did that for the better part of 20 years and I had really suboptimal performance until I I made a conscious effort to make sure that I got adequate sodium each day.
1: Right. And for me, the biggest difference was the the brain fog. Like when I'm Mm -hmm. training twice a day, and I'm also trying to work in between that and do some cognitive tasks or creative tasks, it I was just like, I need to have a nap, like I just have this brain fog, I can't think I can't do things. And then I started, yeah, using element, adding more electrolytes. And all of a sudden I was like, I feel just cognitively so much better. Like I can go train, I can go work, I can train again, I can go for a run. And somehow I'm like, my energy is just so much improved. And I was someone who drank a ton of water and thought, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. hydrated. I was peeing every, you know, half an hour right, um, nonstop. And I always thought I was hydrated, but even looking back, there was, times, like when I first started CrossFit, I was on a pretty strict paleo diet. And that at that time, for me eliminated some uh, issues I was having. But at the same time, for some reason, I don't know what it was, what it, maybe it was like a thing at my gym, people were like, don't have salt, like you need not no salt. And Lauren
0: Cordain early in the paleo diet time. So recommended against uh, uh, ex, extra dietary sodium. So maybe and I think he really it. missed the mark on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: And I remember that I, well, I completely burnt out. Like by the time, you know, the first competition of the season came around, I was done. Like I would yeah. come into training the next day as if it was like, I, well, like you say, I took a rest day. It was as if I had never taken a rest day in years. Right. Like it was like, right. I had just trained already that day is how I felt. So it's yeah. Super interesting.
0: And, and you know, Greg Glassman, it's interesting. Um, this was maybe 2003, 2003, maybe 2004, really early. But I was in Santa Cruz hanging out with him and we were talking nutrition and different things. And he's like, you know, when when people shift to this kind of paleo zone type diet where they remove the bulk of the processed foods, they remove the bulk of the sodium that they're consuming. And they have to get at least five grams of sodium per day or they just blow up. And, and a lot of what they notice is they will go from seated to standing and then they'll get the room spins and, and, uh, you know, that stuck in my head, but I didn't, um, and this is one of my, my shortcomings. I hate weighing and measuring things. So I never sat down and I was like, well, am I getting five grams of sodium a day? I would just salt my food really vigorously, but I wasn't, I wasn't getting half of that at the, mm. at the end of the day. Like if you're not eating olives or salami or sardines or drinking pickle juice or something that's a really dense sodium source. You just never hit that, that mark, but something he was pretty fastidious with was making sure that people had one of the, you know, like salted almonds, if they did okay with almonds, it's like, okay, the bulk of your fat throughout the day is going to come from like these super salty almonds and people did pretty well with it. But, you know, Greg, uh, whatever his other shortcomings were, he's very crafty and very, very smart. And, you know, even, even he understood this, um, one, the bogus claim that sodium was this terrible thing for our health in general, and then the the deeper part, which was that if you want some elite performance for whatever that means for you, you got to have adequate sodium levels, you know. And if I could have listened to that, then it would have my jiu jitsu, my efforts in CrossFit, like all these, I would have had twenty years of better performance doing, doing what I was doing, but it it lodged in there, but I, I just didn't connect the pieces until nearly 20 years later.
1: Well, I'm definitely grateful that I'm learning this now and much in part to to you having founded this company and then me hearing about it and using the products. So when when it comes to Element, like what are the ratios so that people can know? And then how much do people need? And let's, we could use myself as an example, someone, you know, training twice a day, doing a lot of, uh, you know, conditioning work Mm -hmm. as well as strength work, like a a CrossFit athlete type training.
0: Yeah, so we, the way that we, arrived at the formula, we looked at folks eating a lower carb keto paleo ish type type diet. And we we uh, we had a group of people out of the keto Gains community that do a great job tracking their their food and in, in things like chronometer, which hits the protein carbs fat, but also gives you a good sense of what the sodium, potassium, magnesium and calcium are. And folks were generally great on calcium, they were a little shy on magnesium more deficient in potassium, and they were just grossly woefully deficient in sodium. So we have a gram of sodium per stick pack, two hundred milligrams of potassium, and then sixty milligrams of magnesium. On the magnesium side, we went really conservative on that and used like the most absorbable form of magnesium possible because magnesium can give people the trots. And so we you know we wanted to be mindful of that. And so that's the and the ratio was set up to literally to just plug, the gap in what you would get from a well-composed whole food diet. So we're not hoping that people, you know, get all, you know, all of their allotment from, from element, but it was to, to fill a, a deficiency in their, their diet. The how much do you need really is dependent on how much you, as far as element, how much electrolytes are you getting in the rest of your diet? So again, like if somebody has a meal or two per day that has, olives. so like 10 olives is a gram of sodium. Uh, a couple of ounces of salami is a gram of sodium. Um, s- uh, sardines and anchovies. You can really quickly get an ounce of so a gram of sodium. So you know, if you're getting dietary sources of sodium and potassium and magnesium, you may not need to really supplement all that much, but it's hard to do that and it's kind of a- a inconvenient at times. So um, a- as an example for for myself, most days, I will start the day off with uh, about 30 ounces of water, and I make a tea, a decaf black tea, and then I put an orange or a raspberry element in that. And I it just tastes amazing, and I'll, I'll get that going. We do jujitsu around noon, and I'll have two more of those brewed up. And one of them I sip on on the way to jujitsu, and I get maybe half of it done on the way there, and then I'll sip on it during our one hour of drilling. And then when we do our live rolling, I'll, I'll take the second one and do a pretty big swig of it, you know, maybe a third of it. And I do the rest of my rolling. And then when I'm done, I will finish that. So now I'm up to three on that day. And then depending on how I feel the rest of the day, like if I go lift weights and do a sauna, I will maybe do two more. Okay. If I don't, then I may, I may not, I may be done, you know, and, and again, if I'm, I'm pretty much done with the day, I will, as part of my lunch, try to like grab some salami or, or something like that, like something that's a really dense uh, salt source to, to fill that in. But when I went to Costa Rica, we did a jujitsu camp in Costa Rica. Um, I did six of the elements during a two and a half hour training session because it was 90 degrees, 95% humidity. I'm wearing a gi. And I mean, I was just sweating like crazy. And so I had I had six, basically six equivalents of this stuff brewed up and I, I used it during that time and then used more additionally above and beyond that. So uh, the heat, humidity, physical activity, um, the size of the individual, uh, whether or not the person is a, c- considered a super sweater, like
1: mm.
0: men more often than women are what we call super sweaters. And so women in general, when they sweat, It's smaller droplets and it's actually much more efficient at at cooling than men. Just the sweat tends to like kind of kind of pour off them. And for some men, they disproportionately lose large amounts of sodium. So we've done some work with some NHL teams and they've reported that these 200, 210 pound guys can lose 10 pounds of water during a training session or a game Mm. and 10 grams of sodium, 10,000 milligrams of sodium during a game. So mm-hmm. not only did they need to deal with what they needed for the rest of the day, but they need to replace what they had during that event. So you're talking about 10, you know, the equivalent of like 10 stick packs or getting it somewhere else within their diet. And, and uh, you know, it's worth mentioning the American council of sports medicine, their guidelines for people, hard training and or hot, humid environments is seven to 10 grams of sodium. So this isn't wow. this isn't just pulling this out of our backside like this, this is very evidence based, well supported in the, the literature that depending on size, uh, uh, humidity, temperature, physical activity, um, you know, the established uh, understood needs are as high as seven to 10 grams of sodium per day.
1: Amazing. Well, that's that's so informative. And everything that you've given has been so informative on the topic of nutrition and your backstory. I have a few quick fire questions to end things off I want to be mindful okay. of your time. Um, one of them is, if you could summarize, like you've you've started, you know, quite a few businesses, you've authored books, if you could summarize your time in business into like one short piece of advice for people who might be either they're wanting to start their own business, they're wanting to go all in on training, sport, whatever that dream that they have is, what would that be?
0: And I suck at short answers, but (laughs) I I guess, I guess it's a do the stuff that you really enjoy. So, uh, you know, before social media became super toxic um i enjoyed being on there and answering questions and i was uh, i've always had stuff to sell but i was of the opinion that if i helped enough people i would i would by by happenstance you know make make enough money to to make a living and I, I that knock on wood you know has has worked really well um now with modern social media and whatnot that may be more challenging like when we when you understand that the modern algorithms are set up to like pit people against each other and to not foster community that may be a difficult thing to do but i think that like podcasts uh things like substack where you can get your voice out there and whatnot but i i think being aware of the thing that really jazzes you and is interesting to you and i would um so I'm kind of the paleo guy, I've done keto, you know, I, I, I've always kind of blended those things together. But I think if if folks look at my career, like I haven't done a bunch of jumping around where it's like, oh my gosh, like this gut supplement is the thing, you know, and <laughs> like every six months, you know, I'm in some sort of like an affiliate thing with things. Um, uh, there are things I believe in, there's things that I support, but I've been really careful about what I back. So they've got some continuity in, in my messaging and and, uh, and even trying to have integrity like that. Like if I change my mind about something, like some of my followers will still kind of nail me to the wall. I'm like, hey, I just changed my mind. Like I have this information now, I have this information. And I, I think that it's easy to kind of go down this path where just whatever seems kind of cool, whatever seems kind of hot and really um, lock onto that. And the the unfortunate reality is, is um, Social media does reward extremism, and so there's a real tendency. Like if you post something extreme, you'll get negative response, but you'll also disproportionately get positive response, and this can be a really difficult thing to deal with the reinforcement there. That kind of Pavlovian reinforcement. So I would just be aware of that. You know, uh, uh, don't get seduced by the 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 way that the world um, reinforces um, good and bad behavior right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that because I I give a lot of other athletes advice on social media. And I always say, don't chase, you know, what's maybe going to make you popular, the likes or this, have your message and let that be the foundation, then learn about how social media works, whatever to amplify that message, but don't flip those around. If just the amplification of your message is the the foundation, then you're going to be changing your message for whatever's working in the moment. And like, that's, that should not be how, you know, people are rewarded or how things work but unfortunately in some ways it it is these days.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I also love how you you you've been following your curiosity and thank you for following your curiosity and bringing this this knowledge uh here and to people through the products and um the information that you share and create and I think that's amazing advice for people to kind of, you know, see what 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 they enjoy doing and and follow that path and see where it takes them. If they open one door, maybe this that door is not for them, but on the other side of the room, there's another door and you know, they'll keep going. So I absolutely love that. I have two last questions. I ask every guest one is out of all the daily habits that you have, what is the one biggest game changer for you?
0: Uh, Three years ago, my wife talked me into doing a twice a day, 15 minute meditation. And it's just based off of, um, Emily Fletcher's, uh, stress less, accomplish more. And, um, I don't know if it was just reflective of how much of a dumpster fire my internal world had become at that point that I desperately, desperately needed this. Um, we have kids, we have the business, we're trying to homeschool, we're doing all this stuff, but um, it it was just a, a godsend for me. And I've tried meditation before and I, I've done like the Sam Harris stuff. I've done this, I've done that. But the, for whatever reason, Emily's stuff just clicked. And again, I don't know if it's because Her message really clicked with me, or it was just, I was so desperate that it was like this was the lifeline thrown to me. (laughs) You know, it it wouldn't have mattered whose method was thrown to me at that point. Like I really needed it, but it worked amazing for me. And Emily is just a beautiful, wonderful person. You you should have her on sometime. Like she's just a, a wonderful human being. And so that that twice a day meditation just um it improved my sleep, it improved my. My tendency to kind of overreact to things, like if kids do something squirrely, it would give me that buffer. Whereas instead of just kind of like snapping at them, I'd stop and be like, "Okay, what's going on here?" You know, and it just gave me a little bit of buffer around my my overreactivity. And and uh, man, it was huge.
1: I love that. I'm a big fan of meditation, and I love how you talked about that kind of buffer between reactivity. Because imagine yep. if everybody in the world had a little bit more of that buffer. I think interactions, conversations, arguments, disagreements, would be a little bit easier. So I'm a big, big fan of meditation and uh, hope that everyone can try and find their unique style of meditation or gratitude practice or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, Last one, you're at the end of your life. You're looking back on everything you've done. What's the impact that you wanted to have made when you're looking back?
0: Really at this point, I just want to make sure that I did right by my kids. Like, I feel like I've done uh, a lot within the health and wellness space and like making the the world a better place. Like, honestly, I feel like I, if I turned every single thing off right now and just disappeared from the interwebs, it's like, I, I gave it the office. I did my, my go. Um, there are a lot of people who, who kind of got their start from working with my material and now we're going on to do things. So, so there's a legacy there. Like there is a, a, an operating system based in this kind of evolutionary framework that will go on whether I'm alive or dead. But, um, my kids, like my kids are really the the thing. Like I, I want to know that I've done the best job that I can with them. And hopefully my wife still, you know, loves me at the, at that point. Like that's really the most important things I have right now.
1: Amazing. Amazing answer. And where can people learn more about you and what you do?
0: Uh, Most everything is over at robwolf.com, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F.com. And I do also uh, produce a ton of material for drinkelement.com. So intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets, performance athletics, like we have a lot of material there too.
1: Awesome. I will definitely put those on the show notes and just want to say how grateful I am that you came on share this knowledge with all of us. Um, and for leaving that legacy, like you said, in the health and wellness world, I think we need more people who are following what they're curious about and seeing where that goes. Because like, like we talked about, um, in the nutrition space, there's a lot we still don't know. And so the more people, the more hands in, in the pot, per se, who are following their curiosities in that space, I think the better.
0: Absolutely. Thanks. It was a huge honor being on the show.